Welcome to the Emmanuel Baptist Church Podcast. We pray that the sermon you're about to hear would be useful as you grow in your love for God and your love for His church. Now, here's today's sermon. Well, turn, if you would, in your copy of God's Word to the book of Matthew, more specifically, Matthew chapter 2. So far, in the book of Matthew, let me give you a kind of a recap since I wasn't preaching last week. So far, we've seen that Christ, the King, has been born, and He's been born into a place where there's already a King established, and He really likes His throne. And so He's born really in competition to this crazy King Herod, and Herod wants to find Him and get acquainted, if you will, with this competition of His. And we know what that means, right? The text hasn't explicitly told us yet what his intentions are when he comes face to face with his competition, Jesus Christ, but we can speculate. He says he wants to worship him, but we find out today he has other plans than to worship the Christ. And so today we see in Matthew 2, starting in verse 13 through the rest of the chapter, Herod's efforts to find Jesus. So this is the word of the Lord, Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 13. This is what it says. Now when they had departed, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, and he said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose, and he took the child and his mother by night, and he departed to Egypt, and he remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and he killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all the region who were two years old or younger, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, An angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose, and he took the child and his mother, and he went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea, in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and he lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. May God bless the reading of his word. There's so much that we could take from this passage. There's so many different roads I could go down, kind of walk through what's happening. I mean, the fact that Christ was born in such a lowly place in a manger and then not met with the greeting he should receive as king of all, but with people trying to kill him. And so he flees for his life. I think this really shows that he 
from birth can relate to the lowly and heartbroken and hurting. It's been his whole life. So we could go down that road. We could see how God speaks to people today all over this passage we see, for it was fulfilled by the law and prophets, and God speaking through dreams. We could talk about how does God speak to us today. Right? There's so many different angles we could take on this passage. What I want to look at, which I think seems to be chiefly evident and prominent in this passage, is that God is in control of everything. The word for that is sovereign. God is sovereign. That he reigns over all, ordains all, never loses control, sovereign. Where do, where do we see that? Well, we see in this text a few things that are happening. That Joseph's life was turned upside down in the middle of the night. Twice, both leaving Israel and returning to Israel, he had to uproot everything. We see children being ripped from their households, slaughtered in front of their parents. A graphic image to think about. And in the midst of all that tragedy, and in the midst of all these things, every step of the way, the Word of God tells us that this was planned and prophesied about by God long before it ever took place, right? This was to fulfill the law spoken by the prophets, right? So they flee to Egypt. Hosea 11 prophesied of this 700 years before it ever took place. The children were massacred. Jeremiah and Jeremiah 31 prophesied of this 600 years before. They returned to Egypt. Out of Egypt, the Son of God goes. Isaiah 11 prophesied about this 700 years before. In the midst of all the tragedy, in the midst of all the heartbreak, in the midst of all that seems confusing and doesn't make sense for you and I and our small perspective, we can see when we zoom out that God is sovereign and God is in control of all of it. I think at the end of this time in this text together, my hope is that you and I would find great comfort in that. I'm just laying my cards out on the table. That's where I hope you will get. Even in your hardships, even in the midst of your worst nightmares, Cancer, marital separation, unemployment, sickness, death of a child, you name it. In the midst of whatever trials you might go through or are going through, this text teaches us that one, well, God grieves with us. He walks with us and he hurts where we hurt. But also God is not surprised. God planned it, and there's comfort to know that he has a better purpose for it that you just can't see yet. So that's where we're going. Two things I really want us to see in this text for my people that outline. You're my people. I love you all. 
outliners. First, trust God in everything, even when, first, things don't make sense. Trust God in everything, even when things don't make sense. I remember uh, early in marriage, we were living in a small little apartment in Springfield, and before marriage, uh, all I knew when it came to cooking was how to boil water to put ramen noodles in it, and that you put the cereal in before the milk. That's, that was the extent of my knowledge in cooking for dinner. I lost a lot of weight as a bachelor. <laughs> and um, so we get married, and Sarah's, she's the cook. And I uh, remember one night, she wasn't able to, and she said, hey, look, here's the instructions. And I don't remember what it was. Like, it was pork tenderloin. Yes, oh, look at me. Um, and, and she's like, hey, I won't be home, running late. This is what you do. She gives very clear instructions. Looking back now, they were very clear. Um, but she said to put it in a pan, I think is the word that she used. Put the pork on the pan, and that can go both in the oven and then I think you, like, finish it off on the stovetop. I don't really know. I don't understand this. I'm probably butchering, and all my cooks are like, what is he talking about? That's not how you. Well, that's how my wife told me how to do it. So um, I was like, man, but I don't know. I I can't really see a pan going both in the oven and then on the, I didn't think you could put pans on the, on the stovetop, but what do I know? So I put it on what I thought was a pan, come to find out, these are called cookie sheets, and <laughs> so I put, I put the pork tenderloin on a cookie sheet into the oven, and then I took it, and I was like, okay, and then I turned the burner full blast and just put it on the cookie sheet on the, I was just like, well, I'm, guys, wait for it to be done, and the metal just starts like twisting and warping. <laughs> And I'm like, man, this is weird. Like, I just, okay. And I call Sarah's like, is this supposed to be doing this? And she goes, no, what are you talking? And so I FaceTime. Anyway, I'm go- I'm, I've made my point. I'm spending too long on it. I was given instructions, very clear words, and I didn't understand it. But as a faithful, godly husband, I just listened and followed. <laughs> you see how I did that? No, sorry, I shouldn't have. But Joseph was given words that he didn't understand. And much more serious than cooking tenderloin, he was given words that made no sense, that really had a lot of consequences in his life if he were to get wrong, and yet still, he trusted. Joseph was told to uproot his family in the middle of the night, to wake up his wife, say, wake up the kid, and go to disrupt their life, and to become fugitives. That's where the Greek word is rooted in the word fugitive, the word flee there, in a foreign country where they know no one. That's the instruction right there in verse 13. Now, when they had departed, behold, that's talking about the wise men, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, and he said, four commands, rise, take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt, remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child and destroy him. Now, just think about this for a second before we read what he does. Think about this. I mean, this changes everything, doesn't it? Those four commands restructures his entire life. I mean, you think about it. You've got to have a new school district now. You've got to enroll a kid. It's, 
Got a job search on LinkedIn, and that's stressful. Got to put yourself out there, find new friends, any people with social anxiety. I get stressed out for Joseph. No, it's much more serious than that, obviously. They were committing themselves because he trusted the word of God. They were committing themselves to homelessness, to be sojourners, fugitives, traveling, unknowing where to go with a toddler. No plan, no support group, no connections. Just go. And look at Joseph's response, verses 14 and 15. Remember the four commands? Rise, said, and he rose. Take, and he took. Flee, he departed to Egypt. Remain there until I tell you, verse 15, and he remained there until the death of Herod. Complete obedience. Complete obedience. And then Joseph was told to return to the country where his life and his child's life were in danger, even though danger still remained to some extent. You can read this in verses 19 through 23, 22. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, go to the land of Israel, for, there, for those who sought the child's life are dead. So what did he do? He rose, he took the child and his mother, and he went. Complete obedience. And I think this took place, the fleeing to Egypt and coming back, took place because God was painting a story about salvation for you and I to see. He wants us to see a message about his salvation for us in this. You see, Egypt was a, was a symbol for slavery. The Israelites certainly knew that. We can know that by reading the story in the Old Testament. Israel was a symbol of slavery and oppression and suffering, godlessness, hopelessness. And I think Jesus' coming out of Egypt is a message for us that he brings people out of those things. The symbol of what Egypt is. He brings us up out of the suffering, out of the hopelessness, out of the godlessness out of the slavery and oppression of sin. And so, if you don't walk with Jesus today, can I just pump the brakes, speak to you directly. God is telling you what He does for people through His Son. As you find yourself with the chains of sin, hardship, hopelessness, God brings His people out of that. Can bring you out of that. I hope you hear that. I hope God would awaken something in you, a burning fire. Say, I want that. I want that. I haven't wanted that before, but I want that now. I, I pray that the Holy Spirit is working in your life to see that. But this life that Joseph and Mary and Jesus were called into, that life up in Galilee now, it still wasn't particularly safe. I mean, yeah, Herod's not alive. It's not 
overly safe. We, we still need to see the realities that are at play here. So they, they go up, and he sees that Archelaus is reigning in Jerusalem, and so because he was warned in a dream, he goes to this place called Nazareth. And that's where they hunker down and make a life. Let's just get some perspective here, okay? Nazareth was only 40 miles north of Jerusalem, where danger was, where Archelaus lived, the son of Herod, who was bent on just killing Jesus. His son is 40 miles away from where they landed, Nazareth. So just Man, that just give us a little bit of perspective here. It's like, hey, come to Bethany, settle down in Bethany, and just know people want to kill you in Cameron. I think we get a lesson here that Christ frees us from the sin and bondage and oppression in life, but he doesn't promise that where we're going is an easy life or a comfortable life. That's not in the text. He frees us from slavery, but he doesn't promise comfort. And Joseph was completely obedient even to that command, wasn't he? He went from the unknown place, Egypt, to a dangerous place. And what does that tell us about missions? I mean, really, I think we should, let's just take some application out of that and, and think about missions for a second. I might step on some toes here, but look at the faith of Joseph. Look at the faith of Mary to follow Joseph. To take your child, the child that you gave birth to, to a place where you know isn't particularly safe, and not long ago, his face was on a wanted poster and at first sight would be killed. Your baby! Wanted poster! Fugitive number one! Slaughter that child if you see him. Right? That was her baby, and she went to the place where he was just recently in danger. What does that tell us about missions? Us who are comfortable in Bethany, Missouri. Not that there's a sin in that, but let us just think Parents, what is more compelling to you? And I'm asking myself the same question. Isaac, what is more compelling to you? The call of God or the comfort of your child? Right? Right? What is more compelling? The voice of God if he calls or the comfort of your spouse? Joseph had to ask that question. Mary had to ask that question. We should ask those questions because oftentimes the comfort of our family is not always the same thing of what is the voice of God is telling us to do. Oftentimes they're not the same. Like Joseph, I think we should trust God even when it doesn't make sense. You ever heard this before? Everything gets easier when you submit to just God's lead in your life. It's going to get a whole lot easier. That is a lie. It's just a lie. Just shooting straight with you. You ever heard this? God will never ask something of you that you're uncomfortable with. Huh. 
I would just love to see Joseph's face if somebody were to tell him that. Mary's face. Truth is, God will demand hard things of you that won't be easy. And they won't make perfect sense. And everyone uh, is thinking, Isaac, you're not selling the gospel well to the visitors. (laughs) Well, I also know this. There's no better place to be in the hand of the one who controls the outcome. Okay? There's no better place to be in the hands of the one who controls the outcome, the one who is sovereign through the journey and at the end of the journey. So, I think so far we can see trust God in everything, even when things don't make sense. But also, trust God in everything, even when things don't look good. Trust God even when they don't look good. Let's read verses 16 and 18. That middle portion. You see, I, I, I looked at the fleeing to Egypt And then I skipped that middle portion and went to the returning to Israel. And we skipped 16 to 18. Herod slaughtering the children. Trust God even when things don't look good. That's what it says, verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he'd been tricked by the wise men, he became furious and he sent and he killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or or under. According to the time they ascertained from the wise men. That was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted because they're no more. Trust God. Even when things don't look good. The original context of this prophecy by Jeremiah. The original context is is he's speaking about during the Babylonian exile when Babylon raided Israel, Jerusalem, Ramah, and moms are having their babies ripped away from them, and they're left there, and the babies are marched off to become Babylonians. And they're just sitting there weeping Can you imagine this? Watching their kids being taken to Babylon, never to see them again. This is history. This happened. And then here, that prophecy is ultimately fulfilled that Rachel was weeping for her children in Ramah because moms and dads wept as they saw their children ripped from their hands and not marched off but killed on the front doorstep by Herod's men. That puts a pit in your stomach. That's real. I just watched Sound of Freedom last week, and I've told so many people about it. Uh, and if you've ever seen it, you should. Um, I wouldn't recommend bringing your pregnant wife of 38 weeks, who's all messed up on hormones, uh, to go watch that movie. But it was a good movie. It was compelling. It's basic storyline is it's based off a true story guy named Jim Ballard, that is cracking down on pedophiles and child sex ring throughout the world, you should watch it. 
But that stuff just wrenches your gut. And you just have to ask, how in the world, God? How could that tragedy done to innocent children be in your sovereign plan? How? And I'm sure you can have your own experience of that kind of question, whatever was happening at some point in your life, to say, God, how's this a part of your plan? Why'd you work this into your sovereign plan? I think what's helpful for us in this time and what's eye-opening as we think about these questions is to think about what happened to Jesus himself. Think about what happened to Christ, the only person who truly is perfectly innocent. Christ is the only one who's walked who truly is undoubtedly innocent, perfect. Let's think about what happened to him. It was God's plan that this perfect, innocent Jesus would be slaughtered. All right, Acts chapter 2. Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. He not only knew about it, foreknew, but he planned it. And it was definite. Jesus was delivered up according to this definite plan and foreknowledge of God and crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And you and I asking, as the, knowing he's the only perfect, innocent person to ever walk, God, how is that a part of your plan? Sure, the disciples only saw tragedy. They only saw their rabbi who's been only kind to them is now being crucified unlawfully. They only saw the tragedy and what they didn't realize that through this tragedy and in this tragedy, global salvation was the outcome. They didn't see that. They didn't know that. They just saw the pain they didn't see the good plan at the end. Galatians 1.4. We have it. Maybe not. Let me read it for you. I didn't put that on there. My apologies, friends. I want to read this to you because it's impactful. And if you've got your Bible, you can flip there if you want. I've got like a cut on my hand and it's not uh, helping me turn these pages very well. Galatians 1, 4. Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the, per, from the present evil age according to what? The will of our God and Father. It was God's plan that Jesus would die. Why? Because it was God's will that we would be saved and delivered from this world that we are suffering in. The disciples didn't see that. Jesus' mom didn't see that. But God saw that in the grand scheme of things. So what does this mean for us? You're, you're, you're probably thinking, okay, Isaac, what are you telling me here? What are you telling me here? Well, sometimes things don't make sense. Sometimes all we can see is the bad. 
And it's in these times that we can know two things. One, God brings good, which we can't see yet, out of the bad that we do see. When things don't make sense, when things only look bad, we can know that God brings good that we just can't see yet out of the bad that it's all we can see. Think about this. When Moses was running for his life, after he killed somebody, he was running for his life, he was leaving all that he knew behind, he was running into the desert, and for all he knew was going to starve to death two days into it. All he saw was the bad, I'm sure. I can guarantee you he did not know that this was leading him into the, straight to the burning bush where God would speak to him. When Rahab, the prostitute of Jericho, saw her home literally crumbling, literally being destroyed, I can guarantee you it did not cross her mind that that would be taking place, that she might become a part of Israel, and more than that, a part of the family line of the Savior of the universe. She didn't see that. Not then. Not in the pain. When Jesus was hung on the cross and he was murdered, it never crossed the disciples' mind, Mary, his mom's mind, that their greatest enemy was just conquered, that their souls were just saved, that they were looking at her son hanging dead on a cross, that she was victorious in that moment. She didn't see that. How could she? When Joseph and Mary had fled to Egypt, when the mothers of those children were grieving, they didn't realize that this was to fulfill what must take place for their Savior to come. So when you and I go through the things that we're going through, the trials that we are faced with, whatever they might be, we have no idea the long-term outcome of it. What we can know is what Romans 8 tells us, that we know that God works everything, not just the good things. He works everything out for the good of those who love him. So when things don't make sense, when things only look bad, we can know that God brings good out of it. And we can know that this momentary suffering pales in comparison to the awesome glory to come. This momentary suffering pales in comparison to the awesome glory to come. So, what do we have to walk away with in Matthew chapter 2? God is sovereign. He's in control. He's not passive. He's not wringing his hands, wondering what to do as if he's playing a game of chess and he doesn't know the other person's moves. He was sovereign over Jesus' homelessness in Egypt. He was sovereign even over the tragedy in Bethlehem. He is sovereign over your trials. Can you hear that? Please hear that. Whatever you're going through, God is sovereign in it and through it. He's not wringing his hands. He's in control. And this doesn't mean that God is the author of the sin in your life. This doesn't mean that he likes that it's happening. We see all over the Bible that he weeps with his people, he grieves with his people, and in fact, he promises to avenge his people 
for all that happens to them. He doesn't like what's happening. What it does mean is that we serve a God who is always in control. He never loses the reins. And we can be comforted and that we'll always be taken care of in the end. And in the end, we will come out on top because He is victorious. Thanks for listening to today's sermon. If you live in or near Bethany, Missouri, we invite you to join us for our worship services held on Sunday morning and Sunday evenings, as well as our various activities on Wednesday nights. For more information on how you can get involved, visit our website at bethanyibc.com. 